Word of the Lord comes to us this morning from 1 John 1, verses 5 through second uh, chapter, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Falling apart up here. John the Apostle is writing a letter to churches he has presumably played a role in planting. From these letters we may presume that John after the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, has gone on to spread that word throughout the Mediterranean world, like many of the other apostles. And unfortunately, in some of his congregations, or in that community of faith, a group has developed what we would call theologically a heretical Christology, which simply means a wrong understanding or wrong doctrine of who Jesus is. Well, what is that wrong doctrine? Well, like I explained last week, we have to kind of piece certain pieces of the puzzle together based on what John has written. We're reading someone else's mail, and we don't have any documents that survive that articulate or explain to us exactly what the false teachers were thinking. But based on the letter itself and several elements of history, we can essentially conclude that they're beginning to think along the lines of heresies that will become well-known in the second century. Heresies called Gnosticism and Docetism. And the notion is essentially this, that the earthly Jesus 
is different from the divine Christ. They're separating the physical human Jesus and making him only human and saying that the divine spirit that came upon the human Jesus, the Christ spirit, was something that was divine. Now, in part, this is probably driven because of the belief that the divine could not die right, and could not suffer. And so if you begin from that point, you say, well, the divine could not be at the cross. It could not be in the suffering that Jesus experiences at the end of his life and must have departed. Then you suddenly you've got a human Jesus going through the end and have to create a time in which the divine spirit of the Christ descended upon Jesus, which usually becomes his baptism. And people consider that the, the dove is not the Holy Spirit, but actually this Christ spirit that indwells the human Jesus with divinity. Now, if you start to think this way, that the divine can't suffer and is, um, can't die, right? you start to elevate the spiritual over the human. And that's what the church is participating in. They're saying that the spiritual aspect of life is really important. The physical aspect of life doesn't matter so much. And we're going to see, I want you to pay attention as we walk through today, how if you start from the point of we don't really need an atonement, we don't need a physical Jesus to die, how that's going to affect their view of sin and their need for some kind of atonement through the cross. Now John begins our section here in 1.5 with the very bold and big statement that God is light. John makes three mega statements about God in his writing, and he's the only... New Testament author to do so. He says at one point that God is spirit, that God is light, and that God is love. And John is actually going to spend from 1.5 all the way to 3.10 unpacking what it means that God is light and what it means for the church to walk in that light. John says there's only two camps. There are those that live in darkness and that there are those who have been called out of that darkness to live in God's light. He actually indicates that one can be fooled. He's going to speak of the false teachers several times that they boast certain things as if they walk in the light, but truly they walk in the darkness. So one of the questions that we'll have to take up is how indeed do we know that we are walking in the light? The other aspect that's important right at the outset is the Semitic idiom, which just means a very common Jewish phrase that was pregnant with meaning, which is the notion of walking. John isn't saying literally that we're going to walk with Jesus, Right? Walking is used throughout the Old Testament, and it indicates intentionality, that you organize your energy around a particular endeavor. Right? This walking is the, is the intention of the believer that I must organize my mind and my heart to make sure that I am walking in the light. Otherwise, the default is to walk in darkness. So how do we see that we walk in the light? How do we make sure that we're walking in the light? like us to consider these three points this morning. Number one, acknowledging sin. Number two, embracing atonement. And number three, walking in the light. So acknowledging sin, embracing atonement, and walking in the light. All right, first, why is it important? Why is it incredibly important to John in our passage that we acknowledge sin and have a right view of sin? Well, look at verse 8 with me. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now John almost certainly here is quoting the separatists when he says, if we say 
it's not what John's saying and his church is saying, but the separatists are saying it, and they're probably continuing to try to recruit people from John's church. And it may sound repetitive. Right? Don't verse 8 and verse 10 sound almost the same? But in the background, right, in the Greek, what's happening is verse 8 refers to kind of a, an internal disposition of sin. So they're saying, we have no fallen nature. We're not really broken on the inside and gravitate towards sin. And then in verse 10, they're talking about actual sinful acts. We're not engaged in actions of sin. So the false teachers, the false church, are advocating both that they don't have a disposition towards sin internally and that they're not actively involved in participating in any sin. Now how and why would they be given to say that? Well, we've already hinted that if they don't want to see Christ go through death and resurrection, then they don't need an atonement. And if they don't need an atonement and the spiritual is elevated, then what you're doing in the physical doesn't really matter. And so we don't know exactly what's going on, but probably even to some extent, they don't even consider sin, sin, because it's just the physical. What becomes really important, usually in these heresies, is that the Christ spirit came to impart special knowledge. And when you got that special knowledge, you were liberated, you were freed, you were redeemed in a certain sense. But again, they're pushing aside all the aspects of the physical suffering and physical death of Jesus as the Christ. Now, you and I don't think exactly the same way, do we? Like, we don't usually start from a point of saying, I don't need, I don't want a Christ who actually suffers and dies. But I think there's a great similarity for us in the ways in which we choose to minimize the atonement by minimizing sin. We try all kinds of ways, in fact, to atone for our own sin rather than to really completely rely on the atoning work of Christ. Why? Well, we get to retain some control. Right? If, if I can atone for some of my sin, Jesus is necessary for some of my sin, but not all of it, then I get to take some of the credit and I don't owe Jesus everything. But if Jesus has atoned for all my sin and I have atoned for nothing, then I owe Jesus everything. And part of our hearts rebels against that idea to truly be submissive to Christ in that way. We can see this in all kinds of ways. Right? Can you think of ways in which you justify sin? This would sound something like, I'm not sinning really because I'm working so hard and deserve a break. I deserve some escape. Or I'm not sinning because that person hurt me and now I can hurt them back. Or my role in ministry is so hard that I get to claim certain perks. And this has been nauseatingly at the forefront in Western Christendom of late. I'm thinking of all the leaders who acted inappropriately toward women in their ministry. And what they would say to the women was, don't you know how hard my job is? Don't you know how much I sacrifice in the role of ministry? There's Jerry Falwell Jr. and Ravi Zacharias and Bill Hybels and another one who made the press just this week. It becomes tiresome, but it's a notion of when you actually hear the language that they use, they're saying, this sin I'm engaging in is okay. Essentially, I've earned it because of all the other sacrifices I've made. It's a way of justifying sin. What about relativizing sin? 
this sin isn't so big. It doesn't matter that much. The Bible has such an antiquated view of human sexuality. What I am doing is not sin. Or I'm not greedy. Look how many people have more than I do. Greed, which is a serious sin, is one of the most easy to relativize. If you start to feel a little bit greedy, what do you do? Just drive through the next neighborhood above yours. And all of a sudden, you don't have very much at all. And your greed can be justified. It's a relativizing of the sin. I met with someone uh, for years in, in pastoral ministry who, who had a terrible propensity to, um, to step outside the boundaries of his marriage. And what he would ultimately say is, I can't control this. Right? He relativized it to something that wasn't so much sin as an addiction that he was out of control. Uh, he could not exercise any control over And so it was relativized in the sense that he was then free of responsibility because he had no choice but to act in those ways. When we negotiate sin, it's desperately dangerous, which is what John is holding out for us. Because when we negotiate sin, we stop to see sin as God sees it, and we pull away from atonement because we don't need an atonement as big as the one that God actually offers. Ian McEwen, who wrote the book Atonement, it's a fictional novel, captures this in one of the most breathtaking of ways in terms of artistic representation of the the need we feel to atone for our sins and our inability to do so. It takes place in three time periods. It starts in 1935 England, then fast forwards to England and France in World War II, and then ultimately will end up in London in present day at the time, which was, I think, about 1999 when the book came out. And the story is of a young woman who grows up in a privileged home on her family's estate in the English countryside. Her name is Brioni, and she's 13 years old, and she's got a talent for writing. Her older sister, Cecilia, has recently graduated from Cambridge University, and she graduated with Robbie Turner, who is the son of the family's housekeeper. Well, at one point early in the story, Brioni sees Cecilia and Robbie kind of having a scuffle. And she assumes that there's some romantic aspects to it, but also because of of the way she's been shaped and the way that she's been prepared, seeing her own parents, she assumes and interprets things a certain way and thinks that Robbie is being uh, rough toward Cecilia. Now, romantic relationship, she's misconstrued that situation. She's not understood it correctly. She's made assumptions that she should not have made. And Robert and Cecilia do, or Robbie, do develop a romantic relationship as the story unfolds. But as their romantic relationship unfolds, Brioni, the 13-year-old, continues to interpret it through the lens she's established. And she thinks that Robbie is taking advantage of her sister Cecilia and then starts to imagine that she must play the role to liberate her sister and free her uh, from Robbie. As the story progresses, there's an event in which the fa- a couple of kids wander out of the house and the family pours out onto the estate to look for them. And in the midst of this, Brioni sees uh, another couple in which the man is taking advantage of the woman. She can't make out who it is, but she decides to assume that it's Robbie and blames Robbie for the attack. Robbie is hauled off to prison. Uh, Cecilia 
who is protesting loudly his innocence, cuts off ties with the family. She'll have nothing to do with them for what they've done to Robbie. And uh, Brioni sees herself as the heroine. She has delivered her sister from the misconstrued evil clutches of Robbie. And then, so the story advances to World War II, and Robbie's been in prison for years, but he's offered the opportunity to get out of prison if he goes and joins the war effort. And so he takes that offer, and he gets to briefly uh, be reintroduced to Cecilia, and their romance is again kindled. Afterwards, he goes off to war. He finds himself at Dunkirk, one of the most bitter batter, battles of World War II, but survives because he's just thinking about Cecilia. Eventually, they are reunited and married. Brioni realizes her mistake and repents and says she will do everything to have Robbie exonerated in the eyes of the law. And the real perpetrator of the crime previously uh, mentioned is identified. And then the story advances to present day, or 1999 London. Brioni is 77 years old. She's a successful and thriving writer but she's just been diagnosed with an aggressive mental condition and she knows she's about to lose all of her mental capacities. And so the very end of the book is a diary entry from Brioni at 77 in which she goes on to explain that the story she wrote is true except for the parts regarding Robbie and Cecilia. And she explains that Robbie actually died at Dunkirk and that Cecilia died in a bombing during the Blitz and that she never had the courage to identify the true attacker in the crime. One might ask, well, why did she write a false story? Why did she portray things in a way that they did not occur? And Briona, even as she's reflecting upon this, says, this was my lifelong effort to atone for what I had done. She knows that she was wrong. And that her actions caused uh, dire consequences for her sister and her sister's lover. And she knew that she could never undo what had been done. And so she tries to atone for it by changing the story and writing it in that way. But what a stunning picture right, of our propensity to write the story in different ways that we might atone for some aspect of sin. When there's no ability to atone for anything. Right? We are as helpless to atone for our sin as Brioni is to atone for the mistakes that she's made with Cecilia and with Robbie. This can be as, as, as simple as a child who does something wrong and proceeds to clean the kitchen unasked. What's going on? Well, I've assigned my own penance, and I will make my sin right. And it's way better to do this and to feel, feel good for a moment and not actually confess the sin. We'll keep the sin hidden but the kitchen will be clean, and I will say to myself that I've made atonement. It can be as complicated as the missionary who divides her life to the service of the gospel only to atone for sins that she committed earlier in her life. What ways are you prone to manufacture your own atonement? It's those ways, it's those things that keep you from actually experiencing atonement. And friends, believe me, you want the real thing. Anything less is going to be horribly dissatisfying and actually will consume you because you've committed yourself to a task that you can't affect. So, how do we actually embrace this atonement? This brings us to point two. John says some powerful things about the atonement 
that is affected in Jesus Christ. First of all, he says that we are cleansed. If you look at 1.7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, the word here in Greek, katarizo, is not simply forgiveness, but it's an actual purification that something defiled or impure has been made pure. It has been made holy, and it looks forward to the future in the sense that what God has made holy can't be made unholy. If you look at Chuan, we learn that Jesus is not only our cleansing agent by his blood, but he is our advocate. In one, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now the word here, right, parakletos, the paraclete, which you have probably heard, is, is, is a word that only John uses in the New Testament. And in his gospel, he applies it to the Spirit. But here in his epistle, he applies it to Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that now that Jesus has been glorified to the right hand of the Father, he continues to labor with and walk with us in terms of encouraging in our faith and being an advocate before the Father, that we would always be protected, so to speak, under his wing. Jesus is the one who walks with us and looks after us on our journey of faith. John doesn't stop there. In 2.2, he also says that Jesus is our propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. A sacrifice given, uh, we need to make sure that we understand what propitiation is. Boys and girls, I think that's a pretty big word to land in the Bible, and you may not understand it. So what propitiation means is a sacrifice that's made to, to placate or appease, still big words, um, say you do something wrong and your parents are mad and you bring them a brownie, right? You're making a sacrifice to try to make them uh, happy again and not so angry. Now what's happening with Jesus and with God is something... Uh, much, much bigger. It's interesting, though, today, uh, if you read some of the, the new atheists or people who are seeking to, uh, to question Christianity and perhaps to oppose it, over and over again, one of the things that you will certainly see is that there's very little bandwidth or patience today for an angry God. Why would, we, why would we worship an angry God? And isn't an angry God who demands a sacrifice that is, is bloody, isn't that disgusting and ancient and reprehensible? And why would we do that? Why would you adhere to a faith or an institution in which part of the solution is violence? Shouldn't we be committed to no violence? Well, of course, the violence is not perpetrated by God, but is permitted by God and perpetrated by those who crucify God's Son. But we have to do business a little bit with this notion of an angry God. And what I would like to suggest is that in some sense, we really need an angry God. Why? In the book Unholy Matrimony, A True Story of Murder and Obsession, John Dillman is the author, and he was a detective in New Orleans in the early 1980s. And in the early 1980s, a terrible crime was committed. Two men decided to collaborate together in insurance fraud. One of the men selected a young woman to, uh, to court. Uh, he doted on her, showed her all kinds of attention. She became enamored with him and fell deeply in love with him, and they were married. And they went on their honeymoon. And on a particular evening, they went out for a walk and reached a predetermined place on the street 
where he shoved her into the road, and his accomplice ran her over and killed her. Shortly thereafter, the widower filed for the insurance claim. But what is even more shocking about the story, as Dillman writes about it, is that these gentlemen showed no remorse. They weren't sorry in any capacity and began to become more and more frustrated with the police who kept interviewing them and bothering them and interfering with their life to the point that they actually advocated that they were the victims and that they should be comforted. Now, pretend for just a moment that you're that woman's dad. How angry are you? What a waste. What, what desperate evil and criminality. And how can you not be filled with rage? In some senses, the proper response to sin is rage. Now, one of the things I think we do tend to get wrong about this to some extent is we, we see God as this rage monster who has to be pacified by the sacrifice of Jesus. And I don't think that's really what's going on in the sense that it's a gift like a brownie. That's not the sense, and that was probably a terrible example that I shouldn't have given you, kids. So we'll work at expunging that from your memories over the coming weeks. Because I think God's anger is not simply, you've got to satisfy my anger. God's anger is about the lack of justice. He's enraged that justice cannot be achieved in a sinful world. And that's a healthy rage that we need that tells us that all things ultimately will be held to account. You may have suffered terrible evil in your life. You probably know someone who has suffered terrible evil. Not to mention all the inequities of the world. Right? They go on all the time. Justice has to come, and justice will come, because Jesus Christ has ensured it uh, by shedding his blood on the cross. And so, we need a sacrifice that... that even communicates to God that God knows, yes, this story will come to its proper end, right? Because all things will ultimately be held to account. So, this is the gospel that John describes, that Jesus is the the one who cleanses us in his blood. Jesus is our advocate, the paraclete. Jesus is um, our propitiation, right? In terms of setting us up right in right relationship with God. How do we know then? that we live in this gospel, that we walk in the light. And this is point three. Walking, and we've already mentioned, is an act of discipline. If, you're not, if I were to ask you, how are you walking in the light? If you can't answer that question, you know what? You're probably walking more in the darkness than you know. That's the spirit of the word, that walking is very intentional. And so how does this play out? Well, John gives us several examples in this passage. And 2.3 he says, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Number one, walking in the light involves keeping his commandments. Verses 5 and 6 in two, chapter 2. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Are you walking in the light? Then your story, your walking, is a reflection of of the life of Jesus. Whereas as people look to you, they should be able to see some glimmer, some shadow of the life of Christ. And in 2.10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Are you loving your brothers and sisters in a way that it confirms for you that you are actually 
walking in the light. Now, John's emphasis here is not on spiritual reflection. It's not on intellectual competence. What's it on? It's about going, going out and actually getting your hands dirty in the midst of practicing your faith by obeying commandments and loving brothers and living a life that actually reflects the life of Jesus. One of the things that John is going to show us over and over again is that he is at least as concerned about orthopraxy as he is about orthodoxy. Right? Orthodoxy is right thinking and right knowing. And you know what? Presbyterians do that pretty well. But what's just as important for John is right doing, orthopraxy. In fact, he's saying if you, don't, if you actually think that you've got your orthodoxy, your right thinking all in a row, but your orthopraxy, your right doing is out of whack, then the proper conclusion to draw is that your orthodoxy is out of whack. And this is how he's challenging the body to review, to evaluate, okay, are we walking in the light or are we in danger of following after some of the false teachers in the false church? What does it look like to understand this notion of atonement and then to actually walk in the light as a result? If you're a baseball fan, you may know the name Bernie Carbo. He played in the major leagues from 1969 to 1980. In the 1975 World Series, he was a hero. It was game six. It was like the eighth inning. Uh, his count was two and two, two people on base. They had to win uh, to actually stay in the series, and he hits a home run right in front of Pete Rose. Uh, and so is a hero in that moment. His baseball career will spiral out of control because he was a profound drug addict. He would be switched from team to team and never be particularly successful, abusing all sorts of drugs, and then going on to be publicly outed as one who introduced many major league players, or many, a number of major league players to cocaine. And he was washed out of the league at 32 years old. He uh, went through his first marriage. He was married also to an addict, and he knew that they were never going to pull out of this while they were together. So he goes through a divorce. He marries again. It's a nightmare. He divorces again, and he knows that he's, he's not so slowly killing himself. He's got all kinds of remorse about his parents' disappointment and their early deaths before they could be reconciled. His life is spiraling out of control. Finally, some other major league players demonstrate love and compassion toward him, and they check him into a rehab facility. Well, as soon as he goes into the rehab facility, he realizes, I don't have access to my drugs, and he has a panic attack. And the panic attack lands him in the hospital, in which he's sharing a room next to an old pastor. And the old pastor starts to explain the gospel to him and starts to explain that, yes, you, you regret your entire life. And in some ways, your life was wasted, but none of that matters because Jesus can atone for all of that. And so Bernie uh, actually converts and starts to walk a life of faith. He has another uh, relapse, um, but comes out of that and continues to seek to walk in the light. He enters his third marriage to a Christian lady named Tammy, who explains that to him was the very grace of God and continued to represent the gospel to him. And, uh, and this is kind of how he articulates that phase of the final relapse and then being married to Tammy. In 1994, I had one final relapse, which plunged me into a sea of guilt and despair. Then I met Tammy, the woman who would eventually become my wife. She reminded me about Jesus and the atonement for sins that he accomplished through his death on the cross. And I believed once more that his blood was sufficient to cover all my transgressions 
and that we can depend on him for the grace we need to overcome the strongholds of addiction or any other habitual sin. And from that, not that it was easy, it was up and down, but he continues to try to to work at following Jesus' commandments and abiding in Christ and walking as Jesus walked. And he starts what's known as the Diamond Club Ministry, which is retired MLB players who are Christians and who minister through uh, the, the context and the opportunities that their status in baseball affords to them. Uh, Bernie attempted for years, in fact, a good portion of his life to atone for his own sins. And what happened? Right? And what do I mean? Right? He says, I'm going to get clean. I'm going to go and do something really good that will make up for these really bad years. And every time he tried to atone for himself, he simply found himself going back to drugs because he didn't realize this cognitively, but he couldn't possibly atone for his own sins. And that just leads to despair. And in his despair, he wanted to escape. And so he turned back to those drugs until he started to truly believe that he couldn't do anything to atone for his sins. And Jesus had done everything needed to atone for his sins. And at this point, he becomes liberated and becomes an individual who profoundly shows what it looks like to move from darkness into light and who continues to labor at walking in the light. Carbo gets First John in this sense, in the way that we need to get it. His obedience does not manufacture his atonement. Atonement is what makes his obedience possible. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed and profoundly grateful for the work that has been wrought uh, in the atonement. How could you be anything but mad at sin and the lack of justice in this world that so often the oppressed suffer the most? We thank you that you are not leaving things as they are, but that you are making all things new. And we thank you that you've given us pretty clear instructions on what it means to to walk in the light and to pursue uh, actively following after Jesus. Would you help us to understand deeply not only our forgiveness, but that we've been cleansed and that there's no need on our part to atone for something that you've already atoned for. So would you help us by your spirit to know our liberation and freedom and out of that freedom uh, to obey recklessly. We ask for your grace in Christ's name. Amen.